Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah, chapter 17. This is the chapter where we truly come to the end of Abinadi's story. His message to King Noah and his priests is now complete. And this period of preservation and protection that Abinadi has had during this time is now coming to an end. We know from Mosiah chapter 13, as we think back, that Abinadi was indeed miraculously preserved during this time by the Lord so that he could deliver his message. And verses 2 and 3 of Mosiah 13 say, And they stood forth and attempted to lay their hands on him. But he withstood them and said unto them, Touch me not, for God shall smite you if ye lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord sent me to deliver. And we can remember at the very beginning of Abinadi's story that he said, Thus saith the Lord more than once, and there was indeed a message that he was sent to deliver. Then Abinadi continues and says, Neither have I told you that which ye requested that I should tell. Now that is with reference to the opening question of the trial when the priest says, What meaneth this passage in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10? Then Abinadi finishes by saying in verse 3 of Mosiah 13, Therefore God will not suffer that I shall be destroyed at this time. Well, this suggests to us then that if Abinadi's message is now complete, as we turn to Mosiah chapter 17, then so is this miraculous intervention where he has been preserved and protected. Well, in fact, we find that this is the case as we turn to verse 1 of Mosiah 17. It says that King Noah and his court do regain control of the hearing at this point. Uh, because in a very real way, they've been bound and they have not been able to speak. But now, in a very real sense, we can think of it this way. Now that they are able to act once again, uh, Noah and his court, then their trial has begun. The prophet has spoken, and we'll now see what they choose to do with Abinadi's words. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, When Abinadi had finished these sayings, the king commanded that the priests should take him and cause that he should be put to death. So, what will follow at this point is a powerful study in contrasts. We just saw how Abinadi's words were received by the majority, which is Noah and his priests. Uh, They clearly are going to seek Abinadi's death even after this miraculous occurrence. And so we'll, we'll come back and talk about that more as we return to the text. But then here's the contrast. We see how Abinadi's words were received by a faithful minority. And in fact, this is a minority of just one. A young man, as the text says, named Alma, whose heart, we could say, was like the good ground in the Savior's parable of the sower. 
Well, the word of the Lord, as it is transmitted through his messengers, has been described elsewhere as, quote, quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow. In this instance, then, the response of those in King Noah's court to Abinadi's words are a, a powerful predictor of their final state. And indeed, that is one way in which the word of the Lord does cut to the center and is divisive. Some receive it with gladness, and they grow like that good ground in the Savior's parable, but others do reject it. And we're going to see that contrast in that chapter. Excuse me, we're going to see that contrast in this chapter. It is those, as Abinadi taught in the previous chapter in Mosiah 16, it is those that receive the word with gladness and that treasure it, that will attain the resurrection of endless life and happiness, to use Abinadi's phrase from Mosiah chapter 16, verse 11. And it is those who reject his word outright uh, who ultimately will be consigned to the resurrection of endless damnation. We'll come back to Alma's story, of course, uh, in Mosiah chapter 18, but his story does indeed begin in this chapter. And then uh, we'll circle back around to Alma's story, the story of Alma and his people, that is, in Mosiah chapter 23 and 24. But for now, since we've just come to the end of Abinadi's entire story arc, let's consider for a moment how it began. Abinadi was a resident of Noah's kingdom in the land of Nephi. Now, perhaps we could say that he was a valued advisor to Zenith, Noah's father. We really don't know. Uh, we we're introduced to, to Abinadi during Noah's reign, but it seems possible and reasonable that Abinadi would have been alive during Zenith's reign as well. And if he was, Zenith was obviously more positively predisposed towards the righteous than Noah was. And so perhaps we could wonder if Abinadi was a valued advisor to Zenith. It also seems possible when we read the Omni account, uh, Amalekai's words, that Abinadi could have even been part of the original expedition to the land of Nephi when Zenith went there. Uh, Amalekai told us in that instance that there were many who moved to the land of Nephi on that occasion. Well, that may or may not be true. Uh, I personally like to wonder if among that many, uh, that Abinadi was among them, and we also know that the great prophet Amalekai had a brother that was among those people, and I like to wonder if that brother was Abinadi. There's (laughs) no way to substantiate that, and it's pure conjecture. Uh, with re- and, and all of it actually is conjecture with respect to Abinadi's early life. So uh, very important to make that distinction, that that's um, only musings on my part. But here is what we can see with certainty as we read Abinadi's story from its beginning in Mosiah chapter 11. We can marvel over Abinadi's boldness when he first appeared to the people in Mosiah chapter 11, as he, quote, went forth among them and began to prophesy, saying, Behold, thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me, saying, Go forth and say unto this people, Thus saith the Lord, Woe be unto this people, for I have seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. Then we marvel over Abinadi's faith when he was sustained by the Lord during a two-year period of hiding. That's uh, kind of parenthetically mentioned at the beginning of Mosiah chapter 12, but it is quite incredible. 
then we marvel over his pluck and his persistence when he returns among the people with the aid of a disguise. That makes us wonder as well. And then we certainly marvel over Abinadi's unflinching bravery as he is delivered by the people and apprehended by the court of King Noah. And that happens in Mosiah chapter 12. And there's never a point uh, where Abinadi softens his message. Then we were so taken by Abinadi by this point in the story, I think, that it was hardly even a surprise to see his deft maneuvering and handling of the opening question that came to him in King Noah's court. Uh, Again, that was Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. But it was still impressive and very instructive for us as we went through that. And then the unforgettable miracle that occurs in Mosiah chapter 13, as something really I think that we all wish we could have seen as a fly on the wall in that lavishly appointed courtroom where Abinadi, the captive prophet, holds Noah and his court in captivity through the power of the Lord through all of these chapters as, quote, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses is dead while in the Mount of Sinai while speaking with the Lord. And they durst not lay their hands on him, as it says. Might just pause there for a moment and think about how uh, these were a people that claimed adherence to the law of Moses And in this instance, someone is standing before them with his face shining, as did Moses's, and they are still hardened in their hearts, all but one. Returning again to the study and contrasts that we'll see as we go through the text. Well, then, as we continue with Abinadi's story, we marveled over Abinadi's message itself, uh, the way that he framed the suffering servant song in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, and then taught about it with such poetic mastery and provided commentary on it. Uh, We have already looked at this, of course, from many angles as we've gone through the the text. Well, and that brings us to where we are here in Mosiah chapter 17, at the end of Abinadi's story arc. We will still be fortunate to hear from Abinadi in this chapter a, a little bit, but only after he has been imprisoned for three days. And by the way, that would be another messianic shadow in Abinadi's story, and there are many. At this point, Abinadi is invited to recall the words which he has spoken. Quote, thou shalt be put to death unless thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. We'll read that in verse 8 of Mosiah chapter 17. One really has to wonder about this invitation. If Abinadi had revoked his words, would he really have been looked upon with mercy by Noah at that point and by his priests and then immediately accepted among his people? We know that this is not likely, and nor would recounting his words have been in keeping with the character of Abinadi. He was a magnificent type of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and of course the Savior himself also stood before more than one court and meekly played the role of the accused, which uh, couldn't be any more ironic since he is the judge of all. Abinadi in this instance also stood as as a worthy judge in many ways, but of course was a type of the great judge of all. As we would expect then, Abinadi does not recall his words. He says instead in verse 9, I will not Recall the words which I have spoken unto you concerning this people, for they are true, 
and that ye may know of their surety, I have suffered death that I have fallen into your hands. Now at this point, his death sentence is carried out by burning, but only after another event occurs that prefigures the plight of his Savior in the meridian of time. Because in verse 13, we read that they took him and bound him and scourged his skin. Abinadi then stands in agony where the flames begin to scorch him, as it says in verse 14, meeting his final demise with the same firm faith, or perhaps from King Noah's perspective, the same obstinate boldness that has allowed Abinadi to surmount every foil that Noah had placed before him thus far. Yet this time, Abinadi will not surmount Noah. Instead, like the Savior, he will submit. He uses his very final breath to prophesy of Noah's destruction, and not in a spirit of vindication, but in the spirit of a true prophet who broadens his statement into a teaching message for all who heard it then, on that day, and for all who might read it today. Quote, Thus God executeth vengeance upon those that destroy his people. Unquote. That's in verse 19. Then, we witness the very final expression in Abinadi's mortal ministry. He says, O God, receive my soul. This is uncoincidentally similar to the Savior himself, who said in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Well, this is the end of Abinadi's memorable story as we finish Mosiah chapter 17, but it certainly is not the end of his influence. Alma is the most notable exception of this, of course, and again, his story will begin in this chapter and then pick up later. But there is another interesting possibility as we consider Abinadi's influence. Ogden and Skinner suggested a couple chapters back that perhaps Abinadi is the very angel that will later, in approximately 20 years, deliver the message to Benjamin that is at the center of Benjamin's address. This, again, I hasten to add, is pure conjecture, of course. (laughs) We are not told the name of the angel that brought the glad tidings to Benjamin. But there are interesting similarities between the words of these two great Nephite orators, and I think it is difficult to overstate Abinadi's influence from this point forward, really, in the Book of Mormon narrative. We love Abinadi. Well, most important, perhaps, when considering Abinadi's influence is that it still influences us today. Uh, While we, we already have Isaiah chapter 53 in our Old Testament, for example, when we read it in the context provided by Abinadi, it can take on deeper meaning for us. The same is certainly true for the opening passage of the trial, uh, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. As we read Abinadi's message and apply his messianic teachings to our day, we can strive to be the furthest thing from the antagonistic majority in King Noah's court that heard his words and rejected them. Instead, we can strive to be like Alma, who applied his heart to understanding, to use Abinadi's words earlier on in his trial, and who defended the prophet Abinadi at the peril of his own life and became a devoted follower of the one who Abinadi was emulating all along, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have divided this chapter into several sections. I want to go through those as we look at the structure of this chapter before beginning our reading for kind of a flyover summary. What we first see in verse 1 of chapter 17 
is that King Noah actually orders Abinadi's death. It's not surprising because of what we know of Noah's character up to this point, but it still is remarkable that Abinadi's face could shine and that he could stand before him and speak in the way that he did. And then this, once Noah is mobilized once again, that's what he does. He orders Abinadi's death. Then we step away from that as the narrative goes on. And in verses 2 through 4, we learn about this young man among the priests named Alma. And here is the study in contrasts. We see how it is that Alma responds to what Abinadi had said. So that uh, that's brought forward in that section. And then as we come to verse 5, we turn back to Noah and his priests and what they do. Um, and so we, we'll pick back up on Alma's story, of course, in Mosiah chapter 18. So Abinadi is sent to prison by the king. He's not killed immediately. There's still some sense of due process here that seems to be going on. And so he's sent to prison for three days. Then after that, he returns before the court. And then he receives his sentence. So that's in verses 5 through 8. Well, he's given the opportunity uh, in verse 8 to recall his words as he appears before the court again. Uh, But here we we get to hear from Abinadi again in verses 9 through 10. And we find that he will not recall his words. And he speaks uh, characteristically boldly uh, before King Noah and his court at this point. So, This brings us to something very interesting in verse 11, where Noah actually hesitates. We'll come back to the text and talk about how this unfolded. But after hesitating, we find in verses 11, well, really through the end, that Noah does deliver Abinadi to be scourged and burned. And I misspoke. There's another section that I like to to divide this into which takes us from verses 14 through 20. So the previous section ends in verse 13. So in verses 14 through 20, we get direct quotations from Abinadi for the very last time as he suffers death by fire. He ends with this expression that is similar to the Savior as he dies, saying, O God, receive my soul. And then we have this very beautiful statement in verse 20 that he had sealed the truth of his words by his death. Returning then to verse 1, And now it came to pass that when Abinadi had finished these sayings, that the king commanded that the priests should take him and cause that he should be put to death. Let's just pause for a moment before we go farther into the text and just imagine being present in this court. I mentioned being a fly on the wall a moment ago. But imagine being there. Uh, Imagine being a participant in this trial and taking all of this in. And we, of course, have reviewed what has happened in, in the introduction to this. But one party is so brazen, Noah in particular, and the majority that surrounds him, is so brazen that he still wants Abinadi killed immediately after he's done speaking. But the other party that we're about to read of is so moved by what has taken place that he changes his life forever, and then untold numbers will change their life forever as a result. In fact, he even defends Abinadi at the peril of his own life, which we will see. Noah doesn't even do that for the women and children that surround him in battle, as we will learn a couple chapters later. 
So this is quite a contrast. They both took the same thing in, both of these parties, as they, as they sat in, in this hearing and listened to Abinadi. We'll talk more about this as well, but Alma was wicked to some degree. He was in a state of wickedness, or at least he was in a state of iniquity, but he was receptive, and that is the great key. Moving then to verse 2, now that we see that even after this miracle, King Noah was still disposed the same way, still wanted to to kill Abinadi. Verse 2, But there was one among them whose name was Alma, he also being a descendant of Nephi. And he was a young man, and he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken. And by the way, the way that it says he also being a descendant of Nephi differentiates between any who could have been a descendant of Mulek, and that would have been possible at this point. Uh, Now, and he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken, for he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. Therefore he began to plead with the king that he would not be angry with Abinadi, but suffer that he might depart in peace. So a lot is happening here because Alma seems to resist the self-deception that most engage in when they are told of their iniquities. But instead, we're told here that Alma knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them. He didn't engage in self-deception. He knew it was true, and he knew also that to acknowledge this iniquity was to incriminate himself and to expose his wickedness before God and to make it necessary for him to need to repent. That seems to be the difference between the receptive heart and the non-receptive heart. At that moment, when you find that you're out of harmony with the teachings of God, do you rewrite the rules or do you change your heart? We find here that Alma chose the latter course. When it says that Alma was a young man, we can stop and think about this for a moment, and this can be insightful for us as we move on. Because Noah... As we were told earlier in this account, I believe it was in Mosiah chapter 10, Noah replaced Zenith's priests. So we get the impression that Zenith also surrounded himself in a council of priests and ruled in much the same way as Noah. Um, But when Noah was installed as king, he replaced those priests. If that's the case, then it would seem that Alma, being a young man, would have been among those replacements. For some reason, he would have shown promise to Noah, and it could be that Alma was very learned and uh, had, had the credentialing that put him in that position. I think we often imagine, I, I guess I'm really speaking personally here, but we often imagine that Alma simply slipped out uh, during this trial and escaped. Um, the escaped part is true. He did have to escape, as we'll learn as we move through the text. He actually pled before the king. He spoke up in this court and actually pled on behalf of Abinadi. Uh, That's quite a remarkable thing, and we'll see the consequences of that in the next verse. First of all, here is some commentary. First of all, from Joseph B. Worthland, who said, Alma knew that he was guilty of the evils Abinadi had laid bare. That, of course, is coming back to that idea of what do you do when your sins are pointed out to you. Alma felt profoundly and personally the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He repented, and he turned with full purpose of heart to do the work of the Lord. He listened carefully to the preaching of Abinadi. 
With a humble heart, with integrity and courage, he repented of his sins and iniquities through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Alma's change of heart is a powerful example of how repentance through faith in the atonement of the Savior can transform our lives. That's from an article called Alma the Elder by Elder Worthlin. Now this from Daniel Ludlow. Much of the Nephite history for the next 300 years is concerned with this man, Alma, and his descendants uh, through Alma the Younger and then Helaman, then through his son Helaman, then his son Nephi, then his son Nephi, who was the disciple of Christ when he appeared in the meridian of time. Abinadi may have felt that he had failed as a missionary. So far as the record indicates, his only convert was Alma. However, as mentioned above, the missionary efforts of Abinadi affected the religious life of the Nephites for hundreds of years. A wonderful comment by Daniel Ludlow there, and of course, we know that Abinadi's words affect the religious life of all of us who now have the Book of Mormon today. His voice continues as one of those great voices from the dust. So, Alma stands to defend Abinadi, and here is how the king responds. Verse 3, But the king was more wroth, and caused that Alma should be cast out from among them, and sent his servants after him, that they might slay him. The king is wroth. Whenever you're wroth, as we've learned recently, you feel much more justified in harming others. And that indeed is what's happening here. And now Alma has placed himself in the same category as Abinadi. He has taken sides with him. The king sees this, and now Alma uh, is uh, is on the same uh, trajectory as far as the king is concerned as Abinadi. And they're actually trying to slay Alma from this point forward. And that's an important thing to understand as we move through in the narrative here. Verse 4, But he fled before them and hid himself that they found him not. And he, being concealed for many days, did write all the words which Abinadi had spoken. That's a remarkable piece of information and something that helps us to understand how it is that we read what we just did uh, as we have gone through all of this. Now, we, we know that Zenith kept his own record because that was kept in first person. Then the record, as, as we can recall, switched to third person as we went to Mosiah chapter 10 and went into the story of King Noah. And this presumably is Mormon's voice, his abridging voice that is speaking to us. But then as we move into the Abinadi story, we have to wonder, how did Mormon ever get those records? We can see from this, from this small comment in verse 4 then, that Alma was the record keeper, and undoubtedly with the aid of the Holy Ghost, because Abinadi comes through with such incredible clarity, Alma was able to be concealed for many days, and he was able to take advantage of that and to write all of the words which Abinadi had spoken. This speaks to Alma's acumen, uh, his verbal ability, his literary ability, Uh, and it also speaks to his capacity for being inspired. Uh, He had a very important job to do here as he wrote those words. Now here's some, um, with that kind of idea in mind, some commentary. First of all, this. Ogden and Skinner say, One young priest, Alma, believed Abinadi, pleaded his cause, and was threatened with death and banished. Fortunately for us, Alma went into hiding and wrote everything he remembered that Abinadi taught. Another example of the value of record-keeping, writing a personal journal for us. 
Then this from Susan Easton Black. For about 300 years, the religious writings of the Nephites centered on Alma and his descendants, his son Alma, his grandson Helaman, his great-grandson Helaman, then his second great-grandson Nephi, and his third great-grandson Nephi, who was a disciple of the resurrected Lord himself. Because Alma hearkened to the words of Abinadi, Alma was able to impact for good the religious course of the Nephites for more than 300 years. Now, we already kind of talked about that and then projected forward to today and how it is that Abinadi is a voice from the dust. And again, we can remember that all of this was possible because of Alma's boldness, his willingness to uh, change his heart, his receptivity, but also his discipline in keeping the record. To the meaning of the name Alma, Susan Easton Black helps us with this as well in the same volume, actually on the same page. And this is uh, from her book called 400 Questions and Answers. She writes, the Latin name Alma is given to a woman. The phrase Alma Mater means foster mother or bounteous mother and is associated with a protective institution like a university, Alma Mater. Is Alma also a Semitic masculine name? Professor Yigael Yadin found near the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea an ancient land deed bearing the names of those who had leased property under Bari Kokoba. One of the names was Alma, son of Yehuda. Professor Yadin's find suggests that Alma is a Semitic masculine name, meaning youth or lad. Well, we move into verse 5 now, and we'll have the great pleasure of learning more about Alma's story in Mosiah chapter 18. In verse 5, then, we return to this other faction, this majority faction led by King Noah, to see how it is that they will respond to this miraculous event and to respond to the words of the Lord as they've been transmitted through his prophet Abinadi, through this messenger who stood before them as a type of Christ. So verse 5, And it came to pass that the king caused that his guards should surround Abinadi and take him. And they bound him and cast him into prison. And after three days, three days, having counseled with his priests, he caused that he should again be brought before him. And he said unto him, so that it's a new day, it's a new time. It's three days later and Abinadi is again in court. He said unto him, Abinadi, we have found an accusation against thee and thou art worthy of death. Now, quite a bit is being said there, and quite a bit is implied, I think. Uh, To say that we have found an accusation against thee is quite interesting. And I would say that because when we go back and read Noah's response, which we do get in Mosiah chapter 11, to Abinadi's opening message, we find that even back at that point, it seems that Noah has an accusation against Abinadi in mind. And it is that he is stirring up trouble. He is not publishing peace. That was the fundamental accusation and is what prompted the spokesman priest to um, open with that question of the Isaiah passage of Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. When he says, thou art worthy of death, that is so rich with irony and it foreshadows the Savior himself. It's just packed with meaning for him to say, thou art worthy of death. Remember, Abinadi has just spoken of those who prove themselves worthy of the resurrection of eternal life, of the the resurrection of endless happiness, the first resurrection. And then he talks about those who are worthy of the resurrection of the damned. Here, 
uh, Noah is playing his part to a T, and he is showing that he, if if he continues on his current course, will indeed be counted among this latter part. Uh, for him to say such a thing that thou art worthy of death is uh, truly indicative of spiritual depravity. Then he goes on in verse 8 by saying, For thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. All right, so they're going to go for a blasphemy charge if you're really looking at this. And it's so similar to how the Savior was bounced from one court to another. Uh, he goes before uh, Caiaphas, but Caiaphas wants him to see Annas for a minute. Then he comes back and sees Caiaphas again. But then he is taken to Pilate, and Pilate hears from him. And then he's taken to Herod. And then he is returned back. The Jews in this instance know that they need some sort of a charge that is meaningful to the Romans. And so when they say that the Savior is worthy of death and that he's a blasphemer, that they're, they're, they're posturing legally. And that seems to be what's happening here as well, is some legal posturing. So we have found an accusation against thee. It's blasphemy. And uh, then in, as verse 8 goes on, and now for this cause thou shalt be put to death. Then there's this in verse 8. There's the word unless. So for this cause thou shalt be put to death unless. And then there's this tempting, and think of the temptations of the Savior throughout his ordeal. There's this tempting offer. Unless thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. Think for a moment about the temptation again of the Savior as he went through his final week and his final days. We can imagine how it is that the adversary was uh, so much a part of the Savior's experience in Gethsemane and how he stirred up those who were around him. And he has certainly has stirred up Noah and his priests in a similar way. He's whipped them up into a frenzy of anger so that they can act out of their anger instead of out of any potential goodness that is in their heart, as Alma did. This little addition at the end of chapter, or excuse me, verse 8 is insightful too, because he says, If thou wilt recall all the words which thou hast spoken. Now you would expect that to have reference to the sentence, or excuse me, um, the charge of blasphemy. Uh, he would say, you would recall all the words which thou hast spoken about God himself coming down among the children of men. But instead, he says, yeah, if you'll recall the words of evil that you've spoken concerning me and my people. So we get some insight into what's really happening here. Abinadi has insulted Noah and his priests. They are aggrieved, and they're running with that grievance narrative to justify their terrible actions. Okay. Returning to this charge, this accusation that they have found, Reynolds and Soljal help us by saying the exact crime for which Abinadi was accused was thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men. This accusation was only an excuse, a pretext for them to slay the righteous Abinadi. King Noah and his priests smarted most because they knew Abinadi spoke truthfully of their wicked ways. And again, you can kind of see that in verse 8. Therefore, they wish to be rid of the reproach by doing away with their accuser. Then Ogden and Skinner provide us with this insight. Was Abinadi sentenced to be executed for believing God would become mortal? No. Doctrinal issues are almost always a cover-up for underlying issues. 
The real cause for which Noah and his priests wanted Abinadi put to death was that he was a threat to their power and influence. They were jealous and angry, not wanting to hear about their sins. Notice their demand to recall the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. It is the same with other prophets and with Jesus himself. Ogden and Skinner provide us with some interesting biblical examples of a similar phenomenon. And one was referenced uh, a couple chapters ago in that wonderful reading by uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Uh, It's when Ahab says, I hate the prophet Micah, son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Herod shows a similar characteristic in his dealing of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 4, it says, For Herod had laid hold upon John, and bound him, and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. Another example of seeing the people's true intent is the Barabbas incident uh, that is recorded in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We read in verses uh, 15 through 18, uh, Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would, and they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he, meaning Pilate, knew that for envy they had delivered him. It was for envy that the people had delivered the Savior, Jesus Christ, to Pilate. It was not because of their stated charge of blasphemy. And in fact, blasphemy didn't hold water with the Romans anyway, and so they had to change the charge uh, when they took him to him. But uh, through all of this, Pilate knew it really was for envy. Now in verses 9 and 10, we hear from Abinadi again after he has come back from three days in prison and he has been accused and given the opportunity to retract his words. Here's how he responds then in verse 9. Now Abinadi said unto him, I say unto you, I will not recall the words which I have spoken unto you concerning this people, for they are true, and that ye may know of their surety, I have suffered myself that I have fallen into your hands. Notice, as with the Savior, when he went before uh, the the many hearings that he did, you certainly do get the sense at different points in his story, especially when he castigates Peter after Peter goes to cut off the ear of Malchus in the garden. He he tells him, uh, meaning he tells Peter that he could have had legions of angels at his command, but it's clear that he is submitting himself Uh, in this case. And Abinadi is doing the same here. He says that ye may know of the surety of my words, I have suffered myself that I have fallen into your hands. Abinadi's faith is so strong here that it's clear that he could have been delivered by virtue of this faith and this heavenly power that has protected him so far. But he knows that now his role is to submit. Verse 10, yea, and I will suffer even until death and I will not recall my words, and they shall stand as a testimony against you. And if ye slay me, ye will slay, ye will shed innocent blood, and this shall also stand as a testimony against you at the last day. 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, we've had reason to marvel over Abinadi at so many points in his story. This is yet one more time when we marvel at the way that he would have been held uh, for three days in this prison. It was undoubtedly a remarkably unpleasant experience for him to be imprisoned in this way, uh, very possibly tortured as well, and very possibly starved. And as he stood before them and faced the, the tempting prospect of recalling his words, that is how he responded instead. Really remarkable. There was a point in Joseph Smith's life where he said something rather similar when he too seemed to be aware of his ultimate fate as a martyr. He once said, and this is recorded in the Joseph Smith Manual, I understand my mission and business. God Almighty is my shield. And what can man do if God is my friend? I shall not be sacrificed until my time comes. Then I shall be offered freely. Now we witness an incredible moment in this story because this gives King Noah pause. He hesitates. Verse 11 says, And now King Noah was about to release him, for he feared his word, for he feared that the judgments of God would come upon him. There is something circumspect about King Noah deep down. He's the son of Zenith, who was, despite the choices that Zenith made, who was a God-fearing man. Uh, King Noah was about to release Abinadi. In every other point, In the story so far, King Noah has seemed very confident in his wickedness. Here is a a little crack in that, and we see that for the first time in verse 11. And uh, Noah would have gone in this direction had it not been for the priests. Verse 12 says, But the priests lifted up their voices against him and began to accuse him, saying, He has reviled the king. And that seems to be what it took. Therefore the king was stirred up in anger against him, and he delivered him up that he might be slain. In a way, it seems as though King Noah was actually starting to see. And so, if we were the priests at that point, we could have said, how then can King Noah's blindness be restored? He's starting to see. Well, here's the best way. Let's appeal to his pride, to his vanity. Let's strengthen that grievance narrative that says that he's been wronged and that Abinadi has wronged him, then Noah will feel justified in accusing him. We need to get him back to this state of anger that will make him blind once again. This is from Brant Gardner. Noah is shaken by Abinadi's words and the power of the Spirit. The condemnation, meaning the condemnation that Abinadi utters, frightens him to the point that he is on the verge of withdrawing his own decree. But the priests do not allow it. As the focus of Abinadi's accusations was that they had taught false doctrine, they had the greatest hatred for Abinadi. They pushed Noah by reminding him that Abinadi has spoken against the king. The belief in the king's divinity, common throughout most of the ancient world, made Abinadi's words tantamount to blasphemy. By appealing to Noah's pride, and perhaps subtly reminding him that his own status was challenged, they assured Abinadi's execution. With that, in verse 13, And it came to pass that they took him, and bound him, and scourged his skin with faggots, yea, even unto death. Now, at this point, uh, there is art that depicts this, and there is, I I suppose, medieval precedent as well. 
the idea of Abinadi being burned at the stake uh, and that that is the means for his execution, it may not be entirely that way. Um, so one way of reading this is that there was a prelude to his execution, really, as there was with the Savior, where he was first scourged, he was whipped, he was flogged, and then he went to his execution. It could be that that's what's happening here, that uh, Abinadi is first being scourged, and that would make sense because it would forecast what will happen later for the Savior. It could also be that this scourging is actually part and parcel of the execution itself. It's a grim subject, um, but we can remember during moments like this that uh, it's taught so beautifully in Hebrews, really, that this is the necessary price for us to be saved. It does speak to the extent of our problem, the fall of Adam that we have inherited and the sinful nature that we um, inherently have and our estrangement from God. And the only way to overcome this and to attain salvation again, truly, is death. And it is through the death of the Savior himself. That is the cost, and that's what Abinadi is reminding us. And so as we discuss this kind of unsavory topic, we, we might do well to remember that that indeed is the price that's necessary to be paid for each of our salvation. So uh, to this uh, question of how it is that Abinadi was actually executed, We have something very helpful here from Robert J. Matthews. He says, We generally say that Abinadi was burned at the stake, and that may be true, although technically it might not be the whole story. Three words in verse 13 should be noted. The first is that they bound him. The second is that they scourged him. To scourge means to whip, flail, or beat. The third term is faggots. A faggot is a bundle of sticks or twigs. This passage seems to say that Abinadi's tormentors took burning torches and poked him with these burning his skin until he died. If Abinadi was actually burned at the stake, the scene would have been somewhat different. I've never seen anyone burned at the stake, but my conception of it is that a person is tied to the stake. The wood or other combustible material is placed at the feet and perhaps piled waist high and then lighted. The victim suffers from the flames and from smoke inhalation. It is a terrible way to die. Several accounts in the Book of Mormon speak of death by fire, and at least one account in the Bible tells of an attempted execution by fire, but in no case does either record say anything about a stake. Two examples of death by fire from the Book of Mormon are, of course, Abinadi and King Noah. Others are the Lamanites who killed the the descendants of the priests of Noah. Later, those same descendants of the priests of Noah were themselves hunted and burned. And uh, references are given for all those, and we'll move into that in in, uh, future chapters. The converts of Alma and Amulek and Ammonihah also suffer death by fire, evidently by being thrown into a burning pit. Uh, That's in Alma chapter 14, verse 8. In the Bible, we read that three friends of Daniel were cast into a fiery furnace, though they received no harm. In my mind, Robert J. Matthew continues, I see Abinadi bound, possibly supported by something, and his fiendish executioners, probably the priests, gathered about him with burning torches in their hands, jabbing him and rubbing him with these until they caused him to die. They actively, eagerly, and physically caused his death. They were not merely passive, interested bystanders watching a bonfire. I can imagine them dancing and cavorting about Abinadi, and hear them shouting, exulting, and gloating over what they were doing. And during it all, Abinadi was pronouncing the prophecies of God's vengeance upon them. 
prophecies that were literally fulfilled. The noise, the din, the stench would be awful. Wickedness and righteousness, life and death are real, and Abinadi's martyrdom really did happen. It was necessary that it happened so the righteous might be justified and the wicked might be condemned. Sadly, we read that Abinadi was only the first among the Nephites that suffered death by fire because of his belief in God. Robert J. Matthews' thoughts there uh, help us to, to link even more what is happening here to Abinadi to the experience of the Savior when the, the people around him didn't just hold trial, but they also smote him and they spit upon him and they railed against him. And uh, it may have been the same for Abinadi then. Now, as we come to verse 14, we are now in this moment with Abinadi. And he is now in the midst of his execution. Verse 14, And now when the flames began to scorch him, he cried unto them, saying, Behold, even as ye have done unto me, so shall it come to pass that thy seed shall cause that many shall suffer the pains that I do suffer, even the pains of death by fire, and this because they believe in the salvation of their God. So there's uh, some very specific prophecy that is happening here. And we will come to the fulfillment of this in future chapters and hearken back to these words. Verse 16, And it will come to pass that ye shall be afflicted with all manner of diseases because of your iniquities. Just as Abinadi looked like Moses earlier, here he sounds like Moses. There's a point in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 60 that says, Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Then Abinadi continues in verse 17, Yea, and ye shall be smitten on every hand, and shall be driven and scattered to and fro, even as a wild flock is driven by wild and ferocious beasts. And in that day ye shall be hunted, and ye shall be taken by the hand of your enemies, and then ye shall suffer as I suffer, the pains of death by fire. Thus God executeth vengeance upon those that destroy his people, O God, receive my soul. And now, when Abinadi had said these words, he fell, having suffered death by fire, yea, having been put to death because he would not deny the commandments of God, having sealed the truth of his words by his death. This is a remarkable example in Scripture and in literature in general of where we come to admire so much a protagonist, a hero figure in the story, And yet, in the end, he is overtaken by his enemies and actually killed. It's a messianic theme. It's it's even something that we love in C.S. Lewis's writings and is most overt, of course, in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, To see that the great figure Aslan actually submits himself and it does allow himself to be overtaken by evil. We know, of course, that that's not the end of that story, nor is it the end of Abinadi's story. And most notably and importantly, that's not the end of the Savior's story when he's crucified and is is, um, buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The, um, The story has actually only begun. Because of the great pathos and the emotionality of this passage, it almost seems irreverent to ask some of the questions that come alongside. Uh, our reading of it. But here is one, and, and it really is that, how is it that this record was obtained? How, how do we get these quotes from Abinadi? Remember, Alma 
had already left the scene. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, who would have kept records of this, and how could it have, have come to Mormon? Sidney B. Sperry once wrote upon this, uh, this very question, in his Book of Mormon Compendium, and he said, Abinadi's predictions of retribution upon his slayers were literally fulfilled, as Mormon was careful to point out. Uh, and we see that in Alma chapter 25, verse 9. The critical reader may wonder how Abinadi's words came to be recorded, it is possible that Alma came on the scene in disguise, and of course there is precedent for disguise in this record as well, so uh, Sperry is, is pulling that from something. Or it may be that one of his future converts was present and at a later time reported what happened. Uh, both of those uh, seem actually quite plausible, and we'll find later that Alma goes in secret uh, in the next chapter. He goes in secret and begins to preach the word, and there, there would among those that he went to in secret, there would have been those that Alma trusted, and undoubtedly uh, there could have been those who were in positions of authority that also could have recorded this. So quite an interesting question, and we simply don't know the answer. Now, this phrase uh, that Abinadi, Abinadi uses in verse 19, that God executeth vengeance upon those that destroy his people. Thomas R. Valletta has tied that statement to a phrase in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 97, verse 22. He says, Vengeance comes as a consequence of disobeying the Lord. In a modern revelation we learn, For behold and lo, vengeance cometh speedily upon the ungodly as the whirlwind, and who shall escape it? For the indignation of the Lord is kindled against their abominations and all their wicked works. Now that we've come to the end of the text and we've um, looked at a couple of those questions that come up, uh, Sidney B. Sperry said that the critical reader uh, might might have those questions. So now that we've addressed those, we can come back and, and, and look at the gestalt here, uh, look at the overall story arc of Abinadi for one final time. And uh, this piece of commentary from Elder Robert D. Hales helps with this. He says, and this was out of a, a uh, April conference talk in 1996, what a powerful example Abinadi should be to all of us. He courageously obeyed the Lord's commandments, even though it cost him his life. Prophets of all dispensations have willingly put their lives on the line and with courage have done the will and proclaimed the word of God. The prophet Joseph Smith went like a lamb to the slaughter, never wavering as he fulfilled the Lord's commandments. And think of our Savior's example. He endured to the end, fulfilling his divine mission and completing the atoning sacrifice for all mankind. Let us follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and his prophets, past and present. It may not be required of us to give our lives as martyrs, as did many of the prophets, what is required is our obedience to the Lord's commandments and our faithfulness to the covenants we have made with him. Earlier in this chapter, we've been able to think about Alma and his influence, uh, but because this uh, creates a nice continuity into Mosiah chapter 18, as we consider uh, Abinadi's influence, um, I'm going to read this commentary from Ogden and Skinner that sounds very much like uh, Susan Black's um, statement earlier uh, as we consider Abinadi's influence. Nevertheless, it's a kind of a wonderful way, I think, of, uh, of ending this reading and considering Abinadi's uh, marvelous influence in the Book of Mormon and even upon us today. So they say, Abinadi sealed the truth of his words by his death. 
And uh, we can also see something similar in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. And in fact, I'm going to pause and read that. It says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Abinadi died seemingly without baptisms, but he did have one convert, and that, of course, was Alma. That one convert's baptism would lead to many generations of great leaders. Alma, Alma II, Helaman, Helaman II, Nephi, and then Nephi II, who was the chief disciple of the resurrected Savior. Also, for the first time in ancient America's history, thousands of Lamanites would be converted and led by their own prophets. The Savior was later greeted by worthy descendants of every branch of Lehi's family, all as a result of Abinadi's testimony. Well, that gives us much to think about, and uh, what an enlightening pleasure and what an honor it has been to discuss the life and ministry of the great prophet Abinadi. This brings us to the end, then, of Mosiah chapter 17. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.